What's up, everybody? As you may know, the film festival that I work for, New Fests, virtual platform is now live from now until October 27th. I am inviting you to take a look at a shorts program that I curated called Black Family Matters. This is made up of shorts that highlight the importance of Black family, Black friends, and Black community during these times of civil and racial unrest. I would love for you to check out the shorts program and support up-and-coming young Black filmmakers. Head on over to newfest.org, scroll down, click on shorts, Black Family Matters, and if you use the discount code ABC20, you will get a $10 ticket to this program. Please check it out at newfest.org and enjoy. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Get your shit and get out! Oh, no. 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 Mm. I'd like to give a big round of applause to my band, Sexual Chocolate. I'll let nobody mess with me, and I do what I want. Hi, my name is Robert Taylor, and I'm a black actor. You got knocked the fuck out, man! Give me my goddamn money. And pay back the motherfucker, hey, OMG, y'all. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passport to black film. My name is Desmond Thorne, and I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. I'm also, if you don't know, if it's your first time here, I'm also a filmmaker myself. I make films, and I really miss it, and I Really can't wait to be back on a set. I mean, this whole COVID shit is next level tragic in so many ways. And like waiting for another wave because this government just has not been handling it well. But like one of the things I really miss and what feels really tragic is being on a set with people, creating, making something, making something new that you wrote. Uh, I miss it so much, and I cannot wait to get back to it. I'm also a film programmer at a festival, a film festival called New Fest, which is New York's LGBTQ film festival. And I am on the programming team, which means that I help to select the films that go into the festival. It is a very informative job for me as a filmmaker and as a lover of film to take a look at all these beautiful projects that people are making every year and see how they can fit together in harmony, in harmony, in unity, and such. So I'm very excited for that. Um... Before we get into this week's episode, this week's nitty gritty and all that, I know that by the time this episode comes out, that this event will have happened about a month, a month and a half ago. But I must speak on the Sunday service that just occurred, the Paddy LaBelle and Gladys Knight versus oh my god what an event what an incredible night what a performance um this whole year this whole summer has been such 
has been filled with such grief, you know? I mean, we've lost so many people due to COVID, due to police brutality. We lost my man's Chadwick Bozeman. It's just been a lot. A lot has happened. And, you know, we all really needed this. Uh, and this was an absolute win for us as Black people and for Black women. It was just an incredible night seeing these two legends just talk and swap stories and swap love and talk about things that had happened to them in the past and the old days and then also talk about, you know, things that are happening now and showing us love. Shouting it out to gay people. That was super dope because both of these legendary divas do have a huge gay audience. So it was just beautiful. And both of them still have incredible, amazing amazing voices like it's really insane and that's just a testament to taking care of yourself over the years and just really taking care of your instrument and your talent and sharing that with people it was a very important thing for all of us to see I think and it definitely rejuvenated me a little bit uh gave me a little bit more hope you know seeing Patty kick her shoe off and all the dancing and then seeing the ultimate trio of aunties when Dionne Warwick came out. Uh, just amazing. I'm just really sad that I did not have my own soul food plate during that. Um, and that was that was on me. I take that L. Um, I take that L and I take it very hard. I'm very tempted to just order some soul food this weekend and just rewatch the whole thing and do it absolutely 100% correctly. So big ups to Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle and also to Timbaland and Swiss Beats for creating verses. It's been a dope thing that's been happening since around beginning of quarantine and I love it. So this week's episode is called Adventures in Satire and Stereotypes and we will be getting into the nitty gritty of the film White Chicks. But first, some gay shit. So, if it's your first time here at Adventures in Black Cinema, we do a little segment on here sometimes that I like to call some gay shit. And this segment is pretty much how it sounds. You know, I take something that's happening in the media, whether it just be television, film, pretty much anything, and you know, we talk about it. We have a little discussion. Um, I've previously talked about how hot I think Scottie Pippen and uh, Dennis Rodman were in the 90s when I was watching the amazing miniseries The Last Dance. Um, and I can't even remember what other gay shit I've talked about. Probably like gay shit in mo- movies. Oh, I talked about... Uh, Jarrell Gorgeous Gucci from Legendary, a super hot, gorgeous man. So, I mean, you get the gist. I talk about hot dudes and I talk about, you know, gay people doing things and pushing us further within the media. Uh, So this week, I'm going to talk about Cheryl Dunia, who I discussed in episode two of this show, um... And Trust and Believe, I talked about the fact that she directed the first full-length feature black film directed and about a lesbian is a film called The Watermelon Woman. And Cheryl Dunia 
just directed an episode of Lovecraft Country called Strange Case. This is episode five of the season, and not only does a main character have her own white chick storyline, which is very scary, very gory, very, very good and very on point, but this episode is also very queer. And I think both of these storylines could have definitely gone left had they not been directed by, of course, a black person. That white storyline could have gone way left. And also a black queer person. You know, it's very important to have black queer directors Uh, behind the camera as well as in front of the camera when telling these stories. It really fills them out and makes them feel the most beautiful, honest, and truthful as they possibly can be. So in Lovecraft Country, in this episode, it is revealed that one of the main characters is gay and we're introduced to the drag ball scene of the 50s in Chicago. Um, You know, it's hinted at in the previous episode that one of these characters might be gay, but it was kind of like a moment of, is he? Were they just saying, is he? It was kind of just like a very much a mystery kind of setup. Oh, and it was confirmed when in this episode, he went over to a dude's house, uh, fucked him in the ass, and then sucked his dick. Uh, Very, very clear. Made it very, very, very clear. And I think kind of what begins as a rough moment for this character in this episode of kind of like non-acceptance, Uh, turns into such a beautiful scene of self and community acceptance when they do go to a club near the end of the episode and uh, you see all of the drag queens doing a show and it's just like a beautiful interior, beautiful moment. Everyone looks gorgeous. Um, And you know, Cheryl perfectly directs this episode and as I said, handles both storylines perfectly. And I think the amount of care with the queer storyline felt especially great. And of course, um, her experiences as a black woman filtering those into the first storyline uh, with the characters having their white chick moment. And then this storyline as this person going through their queer experience. I love seeing queer storylines in black shows and then also black film that aren't all about shame and all about getting hate from the black community. Uh, Though those things can be real and part of our experience, it's not the entire experience. Um, So I love when there is just love in these storylines. You know what I mean? Some real love. And of course, I also love seeing queer Black directors involved in these projects. I hope to be one someday. Um, This show is super good. It is uh, very polarizing. I can understand why some people may not be into it, but... I'm fucking into it. I've already talked about the show like fucking three times on this podcast um, and it hasn't even really been on that long. But like I said, I love black and weird shit and you just threw in some queerness. So extra points for Lovecraft Country. And again, speaking of this character's white chick moment in Lovecraft Country, let's get into the nitty gritty of white chicks. You are here for one reason. One reason only. To learn. To learn. To learn. So, 
White Chicks is a film from 2004 directed by Keenan Ivory Waynes. Um, a little summary if you are not familiar with it and if you haven't seen the film. Two FBI agent brothers named Kevin and Marcus, played by Sean and Marlon Waynes. Yes, there are three Waynes folks involved with this movie. So these two FBI agent brothers who are on thin ice after fucking up a huge assignment get a therefore lame assignment to babysit two young 20-something white hotel heiresses named Tiffany and Brittany Wilson who are the target of a possible kidnapping over Labor Day weekend in the Hamptons. They are not meant to investigate this at all, they're just meant to bring them to the Hamptons and then take them home or to a plane after the party is done on Labor Day weekend. When Kevin and Marcus get into a car accident with Brittany and Tiffany, the ladies decide they can't show their faces with a couple of cuts on them, and the two brothers hatch a plan to go undercover as the two white chicks so that they can keep their jobs and also investigate the possible kidnapping so that they can, you know, get in higher standing with their boss after they fucked up. This film also stars Terry Crews, who we will be talking about quite a bit in this episode. John Hurd, who you may recognize as the father from Home Alone. We got Busy Phillips. We got Jennifer Carpenter, who plays Dexter's sister on the show Dexter, which is always weird because in real life they got married for a little bit. I know they weren't actually brother and sister, but it's a little strange. It's a little strange. Um, Love her, though. Uh, Jamie King, who you may or may not recognize from the show My Name is Earl. And also Frankie Faison, who was in a show that may be familiar to you. A little show called The Wire. So my point continues to be proven. 75% of all black film and television will, 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 will feature at least one nigga from The Wire. In fact, speaking of Lovecraft Country, Michael Kay Williams, who played Omar on The Wire, is one of the main characters in that show. So, some fun facts about White Chicks. This film was originally meant to be a comical remake of Gone with the Wind, set in modern Beverly Hills, called The Miltons. After several rewrites, this film became White Chicks. Um, so this fact is kind of not surprising to me because there are like six writers on this movie, I think. Um, and that's usually not a good sign when you see that so many writers are credited with writing the film. That means that the script has been passed around a bunch and people have done, you know, huge rewrites on it. Too many cooks. 
so my impression is that some people probably wrote this film called The Miltons, and then at some point it got in the hands of the Waynes brothers, and they crafted the story as Sean, Marlon, and Keenan are credited as writing the story itself, um, and then it became this movie. Um, you usually see that in like comedy films, big budget comedy films and big budget action films. Sometimes big budget horror. Yeah, it just means that there are so many hands in the pot. Too many cooks. And that means that the script will kind of come off as diluted a little bit. Um, the original name for the white twins in this film was the Miltons, uh, just like the name of the film was going to be. And this was because they wanted uh, their last name to sound more like the Hiltons, Paris Hilton and such, uh, which they're largely spoofing here, and they still are in White Chicks. Um, The special effects makeup was done by Greg Cannon, who is a legend in the film makeup game, and also did the makeup and prosthetics for Mrs. Doubtfire and The Mask, which totally makes sense because the makeup in this movie is very, very on par with those other films as well in terms of just transforming people's faces in a weird but also realistic way. Like, even when Homeboy has the mask on, he still looks like a person, but just like a green person. And it's, uh, the makeup is always unsettling, too, in the perfect way, um, just like it is in this movie. So my first experience with White Chicks was for the podcast. This is my first time watching it. What? And, you know, I... And I'm glad that I've been kind of doing that lately with the past few episodes, you know, getting to those films that I've been wanting to get to for years and experiencing them for the first time and sharing that experience and that journey with y'all. It's been a lot of fun. Um, And I, of course, have heard about this movie since it came out, you know, Um, it was a really big deal when it came out because the premise was so wild. And I've seen some incredible memes, uh, gifts and moments from this movie over time. But this was my first time watching it in full. And I was also inspired by my roommate, Kun Song, who talked about the cultural significance of a satire of white behavior in her review for this movie on Letterboxd. Like I keep telling y'all, get on Letterboxd. It's fun. It's a way to like track your movies, log your movies, and write about them if you wish. It's like social media for movies. It's a lot of fun. Um, And, you know, talking about how this kind of satire is something that we hardly ever see. Um, You do see it a tad in Head of State, which we just did a couple of weeks ago in terms of, you know, these older white people at this party for this black politician, you know, wanting to be part of black culture and, you know, using our slang, etc., But the satire in this movie is like really on point and really perfect and is really hitting it head on. So a definition of satire that you'll find in the dictionary is this. The use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. 
Now, the topicality of this film is one of the first things that I thought of when I was watching it because I was like, this came out in 2004. This was peak white girl in the media time. You know, we had Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie in terms of uh, A Simple Life, specifically really Paris Hilton. Have you ever clocked in anywhere before? No. Have you ever had a real job? No. Okay. Who's going to order a burger at 6 in the morning? I don't what know. What is Walmart? Because, like, they sell wall stuff? Because we know. we. I feel like we claim Nicole, you know, being the adopted daughter of Lionel Richie. And her parents are actually, at least one of her parents is actually black. Um, Lindsay Lohan, who is just being a mess, airware, all day, every day, all night, every night. Um, it's a really sad, sad, sad tragedy. Such a talent lost to uh, the world and shitty ass parents. I swear I'll be watching The Parent Trap. And though Natasha Richardson is the one who's actually died, it more feels like Lindsay Lohan has died because you're watching someone with talent and then you remember that it all went so downhill. Then you and I are like, like sisters. <laughs> sisters. Hallie, we're like twins. So, 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 so downhill. Really sad. And then also, 2004 was the year Laguna Beach debuted. So, like, these white girls was everywhere, just being rich and being messy and always being covered and followed by the paparazzi. The paparazzi is actually a big element of white chicks as, you know... Brittany and Tiffany's goal in going to this big party on Labor Day weekend at the Hamptons is to be seen and to be shot by the paparazzi and to be all up in the news and all up in the tabloids. And there is also an element of the news and reporting and such in this movie in that Kevin, uh, played by Sean Waynes, falls in love with a reporter who's there covering the party named Denise. And of course, this movie therefore has, a, you know, the old gender switcheroo trope in which, you know, he has to get out of his costume as uh, one of the white chicks to kind of woo this woman, but still not even be himself. He pretends to be Terry Crews's character and goes to a lot of lengths to try to win over this woman who is there to actually try to uncover what's happening with all these white dudes and all this money and all this shady shit that's happening. Um, So... The satirical elements in this movie, like I was just saying, are pretty pitch perfect. There is a famous scene that takes place in the car when the white chicks, their three friends that you see in the movie quite often that they're pretty much always with. Don't act like you don't know us. Karen, Lisa, Tori. Oh my God. <laughs> they're in the car about to go shopping and the song... A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton comes on the radio and the three actual white girls are like bumping, they're like doing their thing and um, they are expecting Brittany and Tiffany to also join them and of course, you know, Kevin and Marcus 
being underneath the makeup and underneath the clothes are like, uh, we don't actually know this song. And so they're trying their best and they're trying to sing along. And, you know, then the uh, white young women who are in the car with them kind of throw it to them and be like, Brittany and Tiffany, this is your favorite verse. And they try to get through it. And of course, the real white women are confused as to why they don't know the song. And then um, Kevin and Marcus change the radio station. And the song Realist Nigga by 50 Cent comes on. And they start rapping the whole thing, including saying nigga, and kind of forgetting for a moment that they're in this uh, white chick's costume and white chick's makeup. And one of the white women turns around and they're just like, I can't believe that you just said that. Say what? (gasps) The N word? So, nobody's around. Yeah. Which is so perfect because I know that's what y'all be doing, especially in fucking songs. Saying nigga just because it's part of a song lyric is not okay. And I know that all y'all do it and y'all all have done it before. I've been at many parties where it has happened right in front of my face. So that's a perfect piece of satire because it exaggerates and perfectly shows with humor people's stupidity. The stupidity of white people saying nigga just because either no one's there or because it's part of a song lyric. Um, my friends Matt and Bowen uh, have a podcast called Las Culturistas, and they also used to do a live show called I Don't Think So, Honey, where they would have comedians and entertainment personalities get up on stage and rant about something in pop culture or culture in general for a minute, you know, proceeding with I Don't Think So, Honey. And when I was asked to do the show, my I Don't Think So, Honey was white people saying nigga just because it's part of a song lyric. I always do at parties what I call the gold digger litmus test. When that song comes on, I wait around to see if white people will say nigga in the chorus. And I say to myself, if I don't hear these white people saying, but she ain't messing with no broke, broke, they about to catch some hands. Not from me personally, but from someone else that I will get on them. Um, Yeah, it's not okay. And this scene is absolutely perfection. There's also a white trope in here that is perfectly satirized in terms of the whole, I'm gonna talk to your supervisor. I'm gonna write a letter as being like the big double whammy that white women throw out, which is so true. I used to work at a little restaurant called Alice's Teacup in the Upper East Side. And this is a place where we do afternoon tea service, but it's made super cute for, you know, 
kids. It's an Alice in Wonderland theme. It's a good idea, but because of where the restaurant is, you deal with a lot of shitty clientele who feel like they can be super uber specific and shitty just because they're rich and they're paying a lot of money for the food. Um, So that was the kind of threat that uh, was always, you know, meant to be the scariest thing for us, especially the whole thing of like, I'm gonna write a letter. Brittany and Tiffany use that on Kevin and Marcus after they get in the car accident with them. And, you know, Kevin and Marcus are like, no, 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 because they know that that is the Trump card, uh, pardon the language, and using that man's name. Kevin and Marcus also use this against the two FBI agents who are undercover working in the hotel to actually do the assignment of finding the person who is supposedly going to kidnap these girls. Um, When Kevin and Marcus first arrive at the hotel in disguise, they of course don't have ID and credit cards with these women's names on them. So they kind of pitch a fit and they end pitching up this bitch fit, as they call it, with uh, wanting to write a letter, saying that they're going to write a letter. And of course, that scares these guys. And um, it's just a thing that a lot of especially rich white women do to exhibit their power over you. And um, yeah, I'm not a fucking fan of it, but I love how they use it in this movie, because again, it is so real and it's exaggerated so perfectly. Um, The satirical element of white girls dancing to Beyonce is also just perfect. So there are these other two white women that are like rivals of uh, the Wilson sisters, Brittany and Tiffany. And uh, they're always trying to one-up them. And uh, there is a part where they do a dance battle at the club. And it's these two white women that they have a rivalry against, against uh, the actual white friends. And they're all dancing to Crazy in Love by Beyonce. And it's just so funny seeing these white girls dance to Beyonce because they're not good at it. They're very boxy. They don't have um, the kind of rhythm and looseness with your body and your joints that one should have while dancing to Beyonce. So it's very, very accurate and very, um, again, perfectly satirized in this film. Uh, The way they move sometimes looks like they're in pain. And I love that they feel like they're doing such a good and amazing job. Uh, it's so funny and it's yet a reminder that you have never and you will never see a white woman in a Beyonce video because you know that's that's for the culture that's for us you know she don't mind if y'all listen and if y'all partake but everything that goes around her shit that's all us baby Uh, and that same scene in that same club scene you see one of the white party dudes who is on Molly or Ecstasy making out with a dog. And um, that's something that we like to get on white people about all the time. Y'all be taking the dog love to another level. Like, I like dogs. I love dogs. But you will never, ever see me kiss a dog on the mouth and allow them to do that with me. So him 
in this movie, like actually making out with this dog is like disturbing, but also so real and such a great point and something that we love, love, love to get on y'all about because you do it. You do it. So one last piece of a great satirical element that uh, white people really do in real life is when the white counterpart of the two FBI agents who are actually on assignment in the hotel, who are quote unquote undercover, when they get fired for fucking up later in the movie, the white guy is like, oh my God, I'm like the fourth generation FBI agent in my family. My dad is going to kill me. Yep. Y'all stay saying that. Y'all stay trying to impress your dads and be just like your dads and be just like your grandpas and like pass on legacies and all that bullshit. Yeah, y'all be doing that. Y'all need to work on your relationships with your fathers, let me tell you. I mean, I guess a lot of people do, but I don't know. There's something there, and it's struck a chord. It's struck a chord with me, and I'm sure it struck a chord with some of y'all. And I have to say, in general, with a lot of these white satirical elements in this movie, I think that is why a lot of critics did not fuck with this movie. It got very mixed reviews, and I can understand why from like a filmmaking standpoint, but I also think a lot of white people were just like hurt by this film, and they're just like, that's not us. We don't do such things. They got it wrong. But nah, nah, they got it right. Another thing they got right is Terry Crews' character. So, OMG, Terry Crews. All right. So, where to begin about this man? So, we, if you haven't heard, we as black folks no longer fucks with Terry Crews. Why, you may ask? Because of his shitty behavior. Um, first big thing that comes to mind is that when Gabrielle Union, who we all love and can do no wrong, um, was talking about the fact that she had experienced racism and sexism behind the scenes of America's Got Talent when she was a guest judge along with Terry Crews, he did not back her up at all. He went as far to say that he did not experience any racism at all. So therefore, it didn't exist. Huh. Must be nice to live in a fantasy world, eh, Mr. Cruz? And that was just really shitty. Um, these people are basically gaslighting Gabrielle Union, and you're doing the same thing. And to have no solidarity in a situation like that with another black person is just trash. It is trash. It is garbage. It is basura. And he did some more garbage shit after that. So... After the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many more, Terry Crews took to Twitter to say the following. If you are a child of God, you are my brother and sister. I have family of every race, creed, and ideology. We must ensure Black Lives Matter, 
doesn't morph into Black Lives Better. Terry Crews, who the fuck was saying Black Lives Better? Like, do you know what's happening right now? Are you aware or are you just trying to let everyone know what the textbook definition of an Uncle Tom is? You know? Because that's literally, literally what you're doing here, sir. And Martin Luther King's daughter, Bernice, replied excellently with, Black Lives Matter is in part a rallying cry and a protest slogan to galvanize people into doing the justice work needed to derail the Black deaths, dehumanization, and destruction of Black lives that racism causes. Justice is not a competition. And it's like, absolutely, 100%. You know, it is absolutely ridiculous that as well, Terry Crews also tweeted, defeating white supremacy without white people creates black supremacy. Equality is the truth. Like it or not, we are all in this together. Get the fuck out of here, Terry Crews, with your Uncle Tom ass. Absolutely ridiculous. So he's on our shit list and it's very clear that with his character in this movie, the Wayans brothers knew and we just weren't listening. His character in this movie is just thirsting after white women the whole time. The second he touches down to the Hamptons, that is his number one goal, to get himself some white meat, to get himself a white woman. Um, and apparently this is just what he does year after year after year. And I'm so sorry to all of the Waynes brothers for not listening to what you're trying to tell us at the time. Now, this is a film called White Chicks, and it is also a biopic of Terry Crews playing Terry Crews, because at this point, who the fuck else is going to play Terry Crews, you know? Um, there is a scene where uh, they're having this little cute auction uh, to auction off these white women at this party for dates, for a charity. That's some shit that only white people do. Uh, you don't see black people having auctions and auctioning each other off for charity. That's, uh, that's like triggering, actually. So uh, when... Kevin and Marcus have a reaction to them doing this, you know, in their white chicks disguises. That felt very real to me because it's just like, y'all doing what? Y'all are so fucked up and this is the kind of shit that y'all do. And um, when Marlon Wayans gets up there in his white chicks disguise, he is auctioned off to Terry Crews for $50,000. And I'm like, of course this nigga would buy a white woman for $50,000. It is not surprising. And it's, I don't know. There are also some notable quotes in this film from Terry Crews that I believe he's actually said in his real life. These quotes being, get your own, in reference to Sean Wayne's uh, getting near Marlon Wayans in disguise and Terry Crews thinking that Marlon Wayans wants her. White meat only, which I'm sure he said before. And when it's revealed that Brittany and Tiffany are just 
Kevin and Marcus in disguise, Terry Crews' reaction is not like, wow, you're an FBI agent in disguise. It's, you aren't white? And he gets so fucking pissed that this whole time he was going on dates with a black man. And not even the fact that it's a man, but that he's black. And uh, apparently, according to movie trivia about this film, the scene where Terry Crews himself is singing A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton, he did that in one take. And he knew all of the lyrics because A Thousand Miles was his favorite song at the time. And of course, you just keep feeding right into the image that we have of you now, that we should have had of you all those years ago, Terry Crews. So thank you to the Wayans Brothers for just, you know, shedding some light on the situation before we were ready for the truth. Ah, like I said, let's talk about some stereotypes. So again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, this is one of the few times that you see white stereotypes fully on display. Uh, Films throughout the ages have been very quick to show us black stereotypes, Latin stereotypes, Asian stereotypes, Middle Eastern stereotypes, pretty much everything but actual white stereotypes. And now, this film, it is our turn. And the shit is accurate. You know, you can't have satire that is not based in truth. In fact, the more truthful it is, the funnier it is. I mean, there's a certain carelessness that all of these rich white people have in this movie that is so absolutely accurate. Um, Carelessness about what they do, how they speak, how they stereotype other people. Um, They don't care because they are white. They um, also are rich. So the stakes of their lives are so low. Like they have this feeling in this air that nothing can get to them. And um, that's what America, white America has set up for themselves, you know? Um, There's also uh, when, you know, Kevin and Marcus don't have the credit cards and don't have the IDs of these women, they do know that they have in their back pocket this tactic that's been used against them. And they also know that, like, because they are in disguise as white people, there are certain things that they can get away with now, like not having a show ID, uh, which is something that a black person can never get away with. And that also takes me back to the Lovecraft Country episode that I was just talking about. That when this person has their white chick moment, there are things that they get away with that they wouldn't get away with as a black person. And they're able to have that kind of carelessness and that cavalierness that these white people have in this movie and in real life. Um, the way that the white women talk about themselves when they're going shopping at first kind of struck me a little bit um, as possibly sexist, this film being only written and directed by men. Um, You know, talking about their body images, talking about how they fit into things, etc. And it seems stereotyped to the fact and to the point where it almost seemed like this is just how we think of women in general. But what they do so smartly in this movie is they counterpoint it 
with how the other two FBI agents who are in disguise in the hotel, uh, how they talk about women in this movie, it kind of shows the, the societal truth of women thinking certain ways about themselves because of how men talk about them and how they treat them. There are several uh, almost like interstitial type scenes where these two dudes are talking about women and being like, you know, this person versus this person. And then, you know, they talk about um, Rosie O'Donnell and another woman who I can't remember kind of being like, you know, quote unquote, unattractive, don't fit into the mold type of women versus this person. And um, like killing yourself or killing them is not one of an option, something like that. It just reinforces that whole idea of men being really shitty and uh, putting pressure on these women to fit into an unrealistic mold, I will say. Um, So I think that that kind of saves it, kind of showing the reason why these things happen. Um, And I think how the white people stereotype black men in this movie is incredibly accurate. Uh, First of all, when... Kevin and Marcus show up to the Hamptons party in disguise. Um, Someone says that they have Jay-Z lips now, which is something that I hear all the time. The amount of white people I hear talk about Jay-Z's lips is just ridiculous and also really ignorant. Yes, black people have big lips. Like the way that you talk about them uh, often makes me very uncomfortable and makes me want to slap you in the face. Um, There is also a stereotype here that Kevin and Marcus in disguise use uh, to butter up their chief. They tell him that he looks like Denzel, which white people, I feel like that is their reference, their one and only reference for a good-looking black man. I think now at this point also maybe we have Michael B. Jordan. Uh, But that's about it. Uh, That's the only two black dudes that are like referenced when they're just like, ooh, he's hot. He looks like so-and-so. And And, uh, Frankie Faison, of course, looks absolutely nothing like Denzel Washington. And also just white people thinking that we all look alike is it's very real. And it's funny that uh, the Waynes brothers kind of turn that trope on its head by no one really being able to recognize the fact that um, Brittany and Tiffany are not the real Brittany and Tiffany. There are several people who just don't even really realize it. Or if they do, they kind of like, you know, shove it off. Um, there's also a Wilt Chamberlain reference that these two dudes throw out them, um, when, uh, Kevin and Marcus come out at the party in disguise, uh, they're like, oh, oh my gosh, uh, it's the Wilson twins and the other guys, like, more like the Wilt Chamberlain twins, and it's just all, as you can see, entertainment references, because that's kind of the extent of black knowledge that a lot of white people have. I dare y'all to break out some like black historians be like, oh, this person writes like Zora Neale Hurston, or, you know, this person has the gravitas of a Marcus Garvey. I 
dare y'all. I dare y'all. There's also, of course, um, in the auction scene, when Terry Crews uh, purchases Marlon Wayans in disguise uh, for a date, uh, the rival twin says, sold to the big black guy. And this is something that falls into white people always just using a physical descriptor of us and specifically using our race when describing us always. Um, being like, um, so Carl, what does Carl look like? Oh, uh, he's a big black guy. And I'm being like, okay, um, that's all you had, huh? Um, no other descriptors available in your mind at all, uh, at the top of mind in your conscious. And all of these things just remind me of, you know, always living around liberal white people, always going to school with liberal white people, these people who mean well, but often say and do these things that are microaggressions. And, you know, they do them a lot in front of us, but this movie, it makes me feel like, oh, this is what y'all do all the time when we're just not around, you know? Um, This movie also does a very good job at countering all of these black stereotypes that white people say with things that are very real about us and the dope shit that we actually do. Like when um, Marcus and Kevin as Brittany and Tiffany in disguise do a diss battle with their rival twins. (laughs) Your mother's so old that her breast milk is powdered. You breastfeed like this. (laughs) It's so funny. All of their disses are incredible. And um, that's blowing sand out of the hand uh, has been used for an amazing gif uh, where the caption was the Dune trailer, that new movie that's based on Dune, all that sand and shit. Uh, So funny, so good. This movie has given so much to the culture in that way. We are obviously better dancers when, um, you know, Kevin and Marcus get on the dance floor as Brittany and Tiffany in the club scene and just cut a rug. And they are, of course, amazing, doing so many dope tricks and just really getting into it and really showing them how it's done. And of course, at the end of this movie, we do save the day. We come through stronger than these white dudes and save the day. And also at the end of the movie, the brothers do learn some lessons. And that's always really nice to see after a screwball comedy, some real lessons and some real growth, you know? So in conclusion, this movie is not perfect, especially from like a filmmaking standpoint. But it has some great laugh out loud moments. I'm not a person who laughs out loud very often to films or television. If I find something funny, most of the time I will just like laugh to myself or think to myself, oh, that was really funny. That was really smart. But there are moments I just laughed out loud too, including the moment in the car with Thousand Miles and Realist Nigga. So good. And it is such a great and much needed satire on the behavior of white folks. Plus, it also made me sad to see New York City pre-COVID. You know, every movie that I have covered that takes place in New York City has made me a little sad and a little nostalgic for the time when there was no COVID in the world and New York City was just like 
the lit place to be. I miss that. And it also bought back some nostalgic with uh, the Sprite Remix logo in the bodega in the opening. Uh, I was like, this is 2004. This is truly 2004 with that Sprite Remix ad. Uh, I miss Sprite Remix too. And there's also a great soundtrack in this movie with a lot of white songs that black people fucks with heavy, uh, including It's My Life, that cover by No Doubt, uh, Trouble by Pink, who I know a lot of black folks fuck with. I love me some Pink and I love me some No Doubt. And also This Love by Maroon 5, such a good song. I miss the days Maroon 5 was a good band. Ugh. White Chicks is available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. Give it a spin. All my life I had to fight. So it is time for this week's You Better Act Award. So every week on the show, we give out what I call the You Better Act Award, which is an award that I give out to a Black performance that I love and I think deserves more praise and attention, so I do that on the show. So, this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please, Marlon Wayans in Requiem for a Dream. So, Requiem for a Dream is a film directed by Darren Aronofsky, which was released in the year 2000. It is not a black film, and it is also not a film that I'm itching to revisit because it is intense. It's a lot. Uh, But Marlon Wayans really gets to show off his chops in this film. Um, This film is about a young man, played by Jared Leto, who is addicted to heroin and just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole with his friend, his girlfriend, played by Jennifer Connelly, and his mother, played by Ellen Burstyn, in an Oscar-worthy performance she should have won that year. Um, And his mom gets accidentally addicted to speed when she is prescribed diet pills. Uh, Marlon plays Jared's best friend, who is also a heroin addict. And he gets to be funny, and he gets to be himself while also being super tragic. I mean, everyone in this movie has a super tragic storyline, and I think that's part of the reason why people are not eager to revisit it. Um, I think it's one of the first times where the whites were like, huh, Marlon Wayans, can he act? OMG. But then he followed up this film with, of course, the scary movie franchise and then this film, White Chicks. Um, You know, I'm glad he went back to having fun after Requiem for a Dream. I think anyone should go back to having fun after being in or being involved with Requiem for a Dream. Um... I would love to see him try his hand at drama at some point again. Um, I want to say that maybe he did recently, but I can't think of the example. Um, But if he hasn't, I'd like to see him take a stab at it again with something that he's truly passionate about. I think that'd be fun. And I think I've said several times in this show that I do like seeing comedians in dramatic roles oftentimes it yields great results. Uh, Requiem for a Dream, if you would like to check it out, is streaming now on HBO and HBO Max. So in closing for this week, some food for thought. 
What are some stereotypical white behaviors that you've observed over time and that you find hilarious? Hit us up on SFB Society and also follow us on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema and comment on the post that you will find there as well. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes. Make sure that you follow the show on Spotify and that you tell your friends, tell your cousins, tell the fam. Thank you, per usual, to our audio engineer, Matt Mozzarella, our producer, Angie, and our executive producer, Miss Amanda Seals. Next week on the show, I will have a special guest with me. I will have Miss Tessa Claire Hirsch, who is a friend of mine and also an actor extraordinaire. You may have seen her in the H&R Block ads on TV and also in the window shops and everywhere. She will be joining me to get into the nitty gritty of love and basketball. Super excited for this one. So until then, stay safe, stay black, stay blessed, and see y'all next week.